0: so delighted that our guest today is a dear old friend, someone I, I worked for many, many years ago, although I hope he's not going to tell stories about how incredibly lazy I was and how I was always running away from his attempts to give me work to do. Uh, I actually I, my entire memory of my law firm experience is the pursuit of escapes from people trying to assign me work. And I am so grateful that Andres is still my friend despite all of the problems I undoubtedly caused him. So, but I should also say that Andres, Andres de la Cruz is a legendary sovereign debt lawyer, has done some of the biggest restructurings in history, including very difficult ones uh, such as Greece in 2012, Argentina and Ecuador just last year, uh, Uruguay, uh, 2003, which is widely considered one of the most successful restructurings ever done in the history of sovereign debt. So we are absolutely delighted, despite my fear that Andres will tell stories of the old days and my students will listen to
1: them. So welcome. Andres. Thank you, Me Too, and thank you, Mark, for having me here. The good thing about being old is that you forget about many things, in particular, whatever you did wrong, Me Too. I only remember the things you did right, and that's, uh, you know, fortunately the case.
0: <laughs> you're your <laughs> Very kind. You have always been kind. I, I remember uh, you, w- you would still take us to the nicest meals, us, the junior associates and the paralegals, even though we were making you do all of the work. And it must yeah. have been the only case of the senior associate and junior partner having to do the work of the people who are even more junior. Uh, but I think that is not the way that law firms are
1: supposed to work usually. But it, it, it was fun. <laughs>
0: Andres, I want to start by just um, setting up some background for anybody who's listening. Uh, And it also sets up part of the reason that Mark and I so very much wanted you on our podcast, which is that our students, one of the projects that they have the option to work on is to try and design a restructuring for a country in crisis and One of the countries that we gave them was Sri Lanka. And as the semester has gone on, Sri Lanka's crisis has gotten uh, worse, at least from what we can see in the press. Uh, But the students are faced with the question from a legal perspective of how is it that if you are a lawyer thinking about a client that is in deep distress, how do you start? Like, wh- what do you do when you have this pile of documents? And I I am, I assume that this is an experience you've had many times. Somebody calls you and says, you know, we, we don't have the money. We have to restructure our debt. Can you give us a sense of how you begin even thinking about this exercise? Do you just uh, weep un- uncontrollably? Do you throw things at the wall? Uh, you know. What do you do?
1: great, great that's a That's a really great question, uh, me too. And you know the first thing about sovereign debt is that not all papers and not all parties stand in the same position. so one of the key uh, starting points, I think, is just to get the lay of the land of the who is who in the picture that you're going to be. Uh, trying to change. At the end of the day, a re- debt restructuring is uh, trying, is an, an attempt to get a debtor from a, a debtor and its creditors from a situation in which it is, which is untenable, to a situation where it wants to be, and all of them or the majority want to be, which becomes tenable again. But the way each of the parties in the process is going to act and react is going to be very different. Uh, leaving aside the hard letter of the contracts. So I think for it, it's very helpful for your uh, students just to make sure that they understand a little bit of what is going on, who is who in the debt stock that they're going to be analyzing, who the local players are, and how decisions are made, uh, just to get a an overall sense, even before, you start looking at the hard letter of the contracts or simultaneously. That will also breathe some life into the contracts, which sometimes are a little bit dry if you don't have the facts and circumstances and the who is who uh, clear or a better picture. of that. So I think that the first thing uh, that I would suggest they do is grab an economist report or grab one of these reports that are, floating out there about the situation that Sri Lanka is going through and just go through it, trying to understand who the constituents are, who the stakeholders are, how they are expected to react. Because at the end of the day, a debt restructuring is a game and the game theory applies and you need to understand how people are going to play.
2: Andres, this um this reminds me of one of the relatively if not completely unique aspects of uh, the sri lankan crisis and, and certainly it is not the only country uh, that that Meets the condition I'm about to describe, but but it's different in the sense that it has large, but relatively atypical bilateral creditors uh, so China, um, maybe India. And I'm wondering whether that is a complication to a lawyer who's trying to get the, the lay of the land in the way that you're talking about is information. Harder to get is it? um, Do you put the those creditors in a box and think about them separately? How does that influence the way you approach things?
1: Yeah, that's that's a very good question. So, uh, in in terms of gaining access to documentation, I think you're right that there is uh, there it is not as easy or as simple. As it usually is to uh, gain access to documentation involving private sector creditors. It's true that we're facing a changing world. And it's as, as Larry Fink's letter, <laughs> I think that was published in the last couple of days, says we're probably starting a new era of deglobalization, I think he refers to it in his letter to shareholders. And how these bilateral creditors will be operating going forward is remains to be seen because they may end up in different camps in this new world. Uh, who knows? But one assumption that I think your students can make for the purpose of this exercise is that bilateral creditors, official bilateral creditors, by, by this I mean other countries that have lent to uh, Sri Lanka may uh, have tough positions, may have tough bargaining positions, but are unlikely to be the ones that unravel the situation. So uh, yes, it will be part of the uh, agenda and part of the problems to decipher how they participate in this uh, new setup that you want to create. and, and you're right that it will be difficult to get lay hand uh, on their documents. And one of the tricky issues is that when Sri Lanka vis-à-vis the private creditors wants them to move, it will be an it will have to represent that somehow it has its other creditors under control. And if you don't have access to those documents you know, the due diligence aspect of the process is a little bit compromised. But I think the bilateral creditors are more a factor than a legal due diligence problem uh, for your students.
0: So Andres, so let's uh, take the perspective that I, I think you have suggested, which is that the students, you know, given that they have limited degrees of control can perhaps assume that the bilateral creditors uh, are handled. Uh, and Also, they can't get their hands on the, those documents, I assume. So if you assume that the bilateral creditors are handled by the official sector uh, or some other means that they are actually willing to cooperate, even though they, they strike a hard bargain, then would it be fair to say that In the current situation, which seems to be one where the Sri Lankan government has uh, delayed uh, to the point of near disaster, uh, hiring counsel and advisors to do a restructuring, that If we're just in a hypothetical world, we don't actually know what has happened. At least Mark and I don't know and our students don't know, but we're just hypothesizing that they've delayed. They don't really have advisors yet uh, and they have payments coming due very, very soon. I think it is just uh, literally a couple of months. The reality seems like what what they'll have to do is uh, negotiate with private creditors, for some kind of extension. I think that uh, you guys uh, in the business call it a reprofiling. And can you walk us through, if, if you agree, how you would even think about getting that extension? I, I assume you have to use the modification clauses. Like, what, what, what would you do if, that was the the task you were faced with. And and please do tell me if if I'm not thinking about what the precise task is likely to be Mm -hmm. right now, today.
1: So I've done a little bit of research ahead of this call so that I could hopefully give some more informed guidance, right? And if we look at the overall stock of Sri Lankan debt, we have a component which is what is usually referred to as the foreign debt. That foreign debt includes bonds, includes the bilateral debt that you mentioned, Me Too, includes debt to um, the multilateral institutions, uh, and includes some additional debt. So if we take that entire part of debt that is about um, 30 30 something, $36 billion, I believe, of, of overall, let's call it foreign debt, right? In addition to that, you have a significant amount of domestic debt that has different characteristics, and people will need to understand a little bit what those characteristics are and whether there is any interplay with the foreign debt, which is Uh, in particular in the Sri Lankan documents, there are a couple of issues that I will point out so that people bear that in mind or take that into account. But you have about a $52 billion equivalent of, of domestic debt. And from what I understand, Sri Lanka has two problems. It has too much debt. The stock of debt is large, but in addition, it's expensive. So you were just referring to the question of do we simply need to stretch out the payments or do we need to do more in order to bring Sri Lanka back into a position and its creditors where, this let's call it sustainable, which is the term of art that people like to use, where the situation, again, is sustainable and Sri Lanka can confront its payments uh, without uh, you know being in a situation which it is now which presumably nobody wants to lend because there is so much uncertainty that they whether as to whether they're going to get paid back that you enter into a everybody loses um, dynamic okay so so I think the the first question that people need to think about is how these different sets of let's call it the domestic debt and the foreign private debt assuming the multilaterals will cooperate, that we found a formula to make this sustainable and the bilaterals will also cooperate as you said. So we're left with about $12 billion of bonds that are outstanding and then a stock of domestic debt, okay? And that's where I think people need to start thinking about, okay, what do we need to do in terms of maturities and what do we need to do in terms of overall cost of the debt and maybe the stock of debt to bring um, Sri Lanka back into a sustainable position?
2: And then, so Andres, once the you have a sense of the broader sort of economic objectives, uh, I suppose the the um, documents and the strict legal terms start to become a bit more relevant. And I'd, I don't want to get us too deeply into the weeds yet, although I guess I, I, I'd i like to get us at least partway in there. I'm wondering if you can give us some context by telling us which provisions of the contracts are especially important and significant. And, and I know uh, listeners will be aware of the modification provisions in the bonds, Certainly our students have spent time looking at those. So I, I'm maybe interested in, in other provisions and and whether there's anything unusual that you've noticed or interesting that you've noticed about the Sri Lankan bonds.
1: Okay. So there are a couple of, of uh, uh, provisions that I've seen in the Sri Lankan bonds that are... Um, in my view, a little bit unusual. I'm not sure how unusual, but there are aspects of the modification provisions in the Sri Lankan bonds that are unique and that we should touch upon as well, okay? In, in the provisions that I found that are kind of unusual in the Sri Lankan bonds, there are three that I would like to mention. There is a definition of external indebtedness that uh, reads its indebtedness of Sri Lanka or or an instrumentality that may be payable in or by reference to any currency other than the lawful currency of Sri Lanka, okay? The or by reference to language is, is, uh, I think, a little bit unusual. I'm not sure exactly what people were thinking when they wrote it into the Sri Lankan bonds. My question, and I wonder whether if you have a rupee-denominated bond that is indexed to the dollar, for instance, as you know, Argentina, which is my country of origin, loves to issue what they call dollar-linked bonds, so that you have, they pay in pesos, but they are, um, the, the amount payable is determined by reference to the value of the dollar. If the Sri Lankans had something equivalent to that, uh, I wonder how that would play out in terms of, because the, the relevance of this provision goes into the cross default among others. And therefore you need to be aware of what's going on with any instrument that would be captured by this definition. And let me complicate it a little bit more this definition is also used in the guaranteed bonds in the Sri Lanka Airlines guaranteed bonds, which is, is a kind of a universe of its own, right? And may have a set of creditors that have different incentives from the sovereign zone creditors. Although the Sri Lanka airline bonds are guaranteed by Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka Airlines is also on the hook and therefore, paying attention to this provision and what it means and whether there are any such instruments outstanding is one that caught my eye. The second one that I found a little bit strange is this provision and the limitation on liens, which um, has an express provision that says that it catches all um, public external indebtedness unless waived by 66.6% of the holders of the instrument where I think the non-reserved matters can be amended by a majority of 50%. So I I think there's a little bit of work to do there, assuming you want to do something uh, with respect to granting collateral to any of the new bonds, right? If you don't care about that, then maybe this is not. If it's not part of the program that you're going to make some of the new bonds secure, then this is not so significant.
2: So, can I just interject just to be to be make sure I understand? And I think maybe the voting thresholds are are flipped. But as I understand it, the contracts, although they have different modification provisions. If we take one of the ones with a a single series collective action clause, there's the highest voting threshold, the 75% threshold for reserved matters, and then a two-thirds threshold for non-reserved matters. But then weirdly, there's an even lower threshold still for um, waiving the restrictions of the negative pledge clause so that even just a bare majority could... Uh, authorize the creation of secured debt it, it, that that's the the oddity if i'm understanding I, it right i, think it's well, I other, thought it
0: was the other yeah. way, uh, other way i'm sorry yeah. i completely i completely uh, misunderstood i thought that the the negative pledge thing was 2 thirds and the non-reserved was 50% and actually one of the things i wanted to ask you andres is when you see these Uh, Do you think, oh, that's just a goof, but maybe the sovereign can take advantage of it? Or do you actually try to imagine some kind of weird upside down logic? But I think I'm wrong in terms of my understanding.
1: I, I think when you see an inconsistency, because the provision in the liens covenant seems to speak of something that you want to do before you actually breach or you're seeking a waiver. And that's where it refers to this um, 66%. But I think that the non-reserve matter amendments, if I remember correctly, is at the 50% threshold, but maybe maybe I'm wrong on that. And that's where I saw the inconsistency that if you wanted to have an anticipated waiver, you needed 66%, but the general provision is uh, a majority. On, on that provision, on that specific clause.
2: And I didn't mean to take us too far off, off the path. So um, uh, maybe uh, before we, we lose the thread, I wanted to hear the third of the unusual provisions that you had noticed too.
1: Yeah, and the third one, the, the, the third one is another one is, is related. It comes up two times. There's, there's a reference to, um, the, there's a the, the term of, defined term which is the international monetary assets which is used uh, in the limitation on liens and then again um, in the event of defaults. And in the in the limitation on liens, there's kind of an explanation which says y- you cannot pledge international monetary assets. However, we believe that uh, the international monetary assets owned by the central bank are not covered by the negative pledge. But it's kind of a we believe. It's kind of an explanation language in a contract, which is a little bit unusual. If you take the new paris passu formulation, it doesn't say, it, it, the one that was uh, produced in 2014, as, as you know, it doesn't say, we believe that paris passu does not mean this. It simply says, this is not what it means, full stop. As a contract, it's a very affirmative. Here it says, we believe. That's so, saying- I'm just,
0: Here, uh, sorry, I, this is just too, too good not to ask. What the hell is we believe? I mean, either, this is a contract. So either they say that uh, the international monetary assets are exempt from the negative pledge clause and the central bank can pledge them to new lenders, Or they're not. We believe who's going to look. I mean, I don't, this seems like they're saying that there's some kind of legal investigation that needs to be done of some mysterious documents. I mean, that's how I read it. We believe it's, that's the kind of language you might use in a domestic contract when you're talking about the applicable domestic law that neither party actually has control in, in a sovereign
1: contract, we believe just seems goofy. It seems unusual. Let's put it, I mean, I don't know what goofy means, what we believe goofy means, but, uh, but certainly I, I found that unusual. I think it comes in the definition of, of international um, public a long second. It, it's somewhere there where we can find it but that called my attention but going back to how that definition is used again, it comes up in the in the events of default again something that I found a little bit unusual and the events of default refer to hold on a second an interesting uh, part it says the issuer or the central bank shall not at any time exercise full ownership, power and control over any of their international monetary assets as they exist from time to time. I thought that was, that's a quite a, an interesting um, provision. Um,
2: hey, can I ask if you, I, I don't, I don't even understand that. So, basically, it is an event of default for the country no longer to control its reserves, its foreign exchange reserves. Like, what, what scenario could a contract drafter have in mind where? one would think investors would want protection against such a thing. I, I, do you have thoughts? I just, I find that so puzzling.
1: Right. The, the definition of international monetary assets covers four items, gold, SDRs, the reserve position, the fund, and foreign exchange. And the definition of foreign exchange is then you have to refer back to the IMF uh, publication Uh, called international financial statistics or such other meanings as shall be formally adopted by the IMF. So let's assume that foreign exchange means dollars somewhere. Um, What does it mean not to, at any time, exercise full ownership, power, and control if you have an attachment order issued against an account whether it's the central bank or not, what if it's domestic? I mean, I, I don't know. This was a, a, I believe, a quite a broad um, provision. Uh, again, given the reality that Sri Lanka seems to be facing, it's minutiae, right? Because the problem is the July 22 maturity, which will make all of this kind of uh, literature interesting, of discussion for. For um, maybe for legal for students and professors, but the reality of Sri Lanka is that it has to pay one billion dollars in July of this year, and that will override any discussion we may have on these um, on these provisions. But I thought these were quite interesting. Andres, can I just
0: ask I, no I want I mean I, let, let me articulate this better these seem potentially very important, especially the limitation on liens that you flagged for us. And here's why I think it might be important, and please correct me. Even for the July payment that's coming up so close, one is going to have to bargain with different sets of creditors to get this extra time. And we talked at the beginning about uh, bilateral creditors, uh, you know, uh, we need to fess up. Bilateral creditors will include countries like China and India uh, that have to deal with their own domestic populations uh, with respect to the fact of having uh, lent money to another country that is now not, going to be able to pay it on time. My guess is that politically, they are going to want some kind of assurances, particularly if they don't raise interest rates, which they're not going to want to. And those uh, assurances often, I would think, would come in the form of promises of collateral. Now, If I understand you correctly with respect to the we believe language, which is kind of loosey-goosey, I can read it, there's there's enough leeway for me to think that I could read it that the central bank can uh, grant those international monetary uh, assets as collateral to back Alone, but um, this other provision uh, also seems to say that it might be an event of default. Uh, or am I getting just completely confused? I, I would think that if you are a lawyer for the country trying to think, oh my God, I have to give collateral to some lenders, you would look to precisely these provisions. And precisely this ambiguity would cause you headaches.
1: You're correct in the sense that if you are thinking, as I said before, of granting collateral, then these two provisions will be relevant and people need to form a view as to what it is exactly that was intended and what it is that a court will read because regardless of what was intended, the paper is there, the ink is there and people will have to make a determination as to what these two provisions mean.
0: Andres, can we um, go back to the modification clauses that you are literally one of the world's leading experts on, given that you had to deal with these in Argentina and Ecuador uh, very recently? I, I think you might be the, the only person to have really figured out how to use the latest forms of collective action clauses versus the 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 prior versions versus the prior, prior versions versus the kinds of collective action clauses that are, are or are not in the guaranteed bonds. My understanding is that Sri Lanka has sort of a weird combination of uh, collective action clauses in its different bonds uh, that at least one should be aware of if one is a designing and uh, an attempt to get creditors to give extra time? Can you, can you give, I mean, I realize we don't have a lot of time, but mm-hmm. could you get, give us at least a clue of how they did this? And, uh, you know, I won't use the word goofy or goofed uh, many more times, but it really seems strange that they seem, first they seem to have, in 2014, when the rest of the world moved to new and uh, beautiful collective action clauses with super aggregation, they didn't. Then they moved in 2017, I think. But then they used an older form of the document that wasn't the latest form for the New York markets. There seems to be all sorts of weird things. Maybe it was intentional, a special plan, but I'm very confused.
1: Okay. This is, yeah, it is, it's a lot of fun, but let's just Think about, first, what the world tried to do. And I think you had a very good uh, meeting uh, ahead of this one with Deborah, who was very much involved in in that uh, exercise. The the use of collective action clauses seeks to take care of two issues. One is a debtor-creditor relationship where the debtor doesn't want to get stuck uh, by not not being able to uh, restructure an outstanding debt that it simply cannot pay um, because there is a minority of holders that are in, uh, the bondholders or, or creditors that can hold out and essentially get paid in full. But the the other dynamic, of course, is the intercreditor dynamic, uh, which has to be taken care of. So the CACs in a sense, or the collective action clauses, seek to address both aspects. And what I find interesting in having worked with the various generations of CACs, as you mentioned, uh, Me Too, I was involved in the 2003 restructuring for Uruguay, where we first introduced the concept of aggregation into the CACs world, is that I'm not sure people fully understand how these two dynamics work. And when, as Anna Gelpern says, you read the contracts twice, you discover that it, they may mean more than what people think um, or thought they meant. So let's, let's go to Sri Lanka for a minute and think about the situation, take a look at the situation, and then see what they have in their papers. So Sri Lanka has 11 series of bonds outstanding. Four series of those bonds contain the amendment provisions that are limited to single series amendments. If your students know what I'm talking about, there is no aggregation in those bonds. So if you want to get changes into the payment terms of those bonds uh, approved, you need to have a 75 percent of the outstanding bonds vote in favor of those amendments, and they will affect only that series. You cannot use that vote. As far as I know, I I will ask a question because I haven't seen the indentures and there may be a little bit, there may be something there that could be interesting. But in principle, that 75% vote will only be relevant for the amendment of that series. Then you have another seven series, and by the way, the bonds that mature in july are one of those four series the other bonds issued under that uh, under the single series threshold mature in 2025 and in 2026 okay then you have seven series of bonds that were issued under documents adopted starting in 2018 i believe um, or or 17 sorry in 17 Uh, Where they adopted the, let's call it the IGMA 2014 model with some anomalies that I will mention. But before that, let me just go back to the maturities under these seven series because you do have their three series of bonds that mature uh, one in 2023 and two in 2024 uh, that are, you know, potentially a an important challenge that people need to deal with when you're dealing with when you're thinking about stretching maturities, reducing coupons, etc. These are these are bonds that have relatively high coupons, and yes, they don't mature this year, but they mature next year and the year after, and are sizable uh, bonds. So that's something to take into account. Now, I mentioned that they have some some particularities in the way uh, Sri Lanka used the. ICMA 2014 CACs. Under the, so the, the, the way those, the ICMA model evolved, I would say has two stages. There was a publication in August of 2014, which came out with a set of terms that were uh, not specifically identified as being for English law documents, but they were conceived and, and produced by English lawyers and really meant to be used in in the English law market. Those provisions then were worked through the rest of the year, and New York law indentures were produced towards the end of 2014. And then ICMA ultimately, in May of 2015, republished, let's call it model terms, distinguishing New York law model terms from English law model terms. And there are some differences that are, there are many formal differences or several formal differences, but there are a couple that I think are relevant here. Uh, what Sri Lanka seems to have done is, Sri Lanka seems to have taken, I would say the English law model, but made it subject to New York law, okay? So that is kind of an anomaly. Okay, but in addition, at least from what I can see from the description of the notes, they took almost all of the English law model, but not all of it. And there's there's one provision that they took, which is relevant and we're gonna discuss in a minute. And there's one that they didn't take, which I also think is relevant. And we need to think about uh, what that means in terms of going through the process. Questions
2: or so, I so, to. You, no, Andres, I, I have a, a somewhat bigger picture question uh, as we as we move towards the the end here. If I if I can, um, just sort of take a step back for just a second. I'm wondering. So we've we've uh, gotten uh, sort of part way into the weeds of the differences in the the modification provisions of these bonds. Can you just um, maybe to give us a little bit more context around that? Explain what dynamic it introduces into the restructuring process when you have, it sounds like there is both a somewhat atypical set of provisions, but also uh, bonds divided into two separate camps where people have different modification rights, e- even leaving aside the the atypicality of them. Is that a, a significant complication? Do you worry that the holders of the bonds that have the, only the single series voting mechanism, do they, do those holders expect to be compensated for, for um, their easier, uh, easier veto vote? What kind of complication does that introduce?
1: Very very good question, Mark. I think one of the issues that uh, your students will have to deal with is whether you will be able to move holders uh, bondholders that have instruments without aggregation into a universe of new bonds, exchanged bonds with aggregation. okay? Uh, because uh, for instance, Argentina in 2020 when they did their exchange, they had two different kinds of aggregation provisions that let's call it the old 2003 style without uniformly applicable, and the newer 2014 with uniformly applicable, and it wasn't possible to move bondholders voluntarily. So the supporting creditors in the older uh, documents were prepared to support, but stay in their model. That could happen also in Sri Lanka, that they say, we don't want to include aggregation in our new bonds, which is an issue, right? Because it gives more leverage in a sense when you're negotiating a restructuring, you are not subject to aggregation provisions.
0: Andres, thank you so very much. There's so many more routes and pathways we could take. I'm dying to know about the complications with using the English model, but not all of it under a New York law bond and the, the implications for how this will play out between the two different types of bonds. And we haven't even gotten to the complication caused by the fact that they have guaranteed bonds. And then I, I think they also have dollar denominated bonds that were issued to either the diaspora or uh, local financial institutions. But if if we uh, went down all of those paths, uh, we would be here forever and Uh, This really gives us a very rich sense of how complicated it can be when you just even sit down to begin to figure out how to do these kinds of restructuring. So I'm saying uh, silent prayer that uh, Sri Lanka really does have. Good counsel who are advising them on how to deal with all of this stuff, uh, all of all of these complications that they have in their lap. So they're probably praying that they don't have to deal with any of these complications. But thank you so very much for joining. And I hope this is the first of many occasions on which we can have you on our podcast.
1: Thank you, Michu. And maybe just three tips Read the provisions on which permit redesignation, which was the big issue in Argentina. Those are included in the Sri Lanka bonds. Notice that they did not include the anti-discrimination provision that was is included in the definition of reserve matters in the English law model and read carefully the definition of debt securities capable of aggregation. And I hope to see you soon.